Here's a few quick notes about the show. Southern Girl Crime Stories is a podcast focused mostly on lesser-known true crime cases, consisting of cold cases, soft cases, identified Jane and John Doe's, along with missing persons and murder victims. You can follow the show on social media, on Instagram at Southern Girl Crime Stories, on Twitter at SG Crime Stories, or search Facebook for Southern Girl Crime Stories. If you're interested in getting some merch, visit my YouTube channel, or you can donate directly via Venmo or PayPal following the links in the description. You can submit case suggestions to southerngirlcrimestories at gmail.com or DM me on social media. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories along with photos of victims, suspects, locations of murders, and more. Lori Houts was born on February 6, 1967, in Las Vegas, Nevada. Her family would later move to San Jose, California, where Lori would attend Gunderson High School. Although she stood only five feet tall, Lori became a member of the varsity basketball team and graduated in 1985. At the age of 25, she was living in Mountain View, California, and working as a computer engineer. Family and friends would describe Laurie as a funny individual with a big heart. On September 5, 1992, she left work at Adobe Systems on Charleston Road in Mountain View with plans to attend a wedding with her boyfriend, Brent Fulmer. However, she would never make it and was found by a jogger murdered inside her car later that evening, less than two miles from her work. Laurie's ultimate cause of death was strangulation. Her footprints were found on the inside of her windshield, showing that a struggle occurred inside her car. Interestingly, the crime scene is located in the 1300 block of Crittenden Lane, which is now the campus headquarters of Google in Mountain View, California. Investigators became suspicious of Lori's boyfriend's roommate, 25-year-old John Kevin Woodward, after they discovered he was allegedly jealous of Lori and Brent's relationship. Upon interrogation, they would soon learn that Woodward also had no alibi on the night of the murder. After finding his fingerprints on the outside of her car, Woodward was arrested and charged with her murder. Woodward would be tried twice in the 1990s, but after both trials resulted in a hung jury, a judge dismissed the case due to insufficient evidence. Woodward then moved to Amsterdam in the Netherlands. Finally, in late 2020, detectives re-examined the case and resubmitted items from the original investigation to the Santa Clara County Crime Lab for analysis. The DNA samples found in the evidence matched Woodward's DNA. Additionally, more than 80 latent fingerprints found in the evidence matched him as well. In 2021, using new developments in forensic science technology, Detectives and a crime lab were able to link Woodward to the three-foot nylon rope he used during the murder. Woodward, now 58 years old, was arrested when he arrived in New York City from Amsterdam and then extradited back to Santa Clara County to face justice. Pamela Ann Dorrington was born on November 23, 1948. At the age of 19, Pamela was living in Helena, Montana, and was a graduate of Helena High School. 
She went on to become a surgical tech at St. Peter's Hospital. Her brother Jeff said she was quiet but popular with plenty of friends. She loved animals, including her dog and horse, and was interested in languages with the hope of studying to become an interpreter one day. However, on February 17, 1968, she went missing from her apartment and was last seen the evening before at the Hofbrock near where the Sunset Casino currently is on Euclid Avenue in Helena. Law enforcement officers, family, and friends continued to search for her for months and even put up flyers across the country's northwest region. Four months after she went missing in June of 1968, the Lewis and Clark County Sheriff's Office received a call from the caretaker at the gates of the Mountains Marina on Holter Lake. The caller said they had found partial remains in the water near a boat dock. Investigators determined that the remains belonged to a young woman, but the pathologist at the time couldn't determine how long she had been dead, but would make a guess and say around four months. A psychologist had analyzed the case and determined that a sick sadist had committed the murder. The main suspect at the time was a man named Courtney Brooke Atlas, but there was no evidence directly tying him to the crime so the case would go cold for 53 long years. Finally, in 2021, 53 years after the heinous crime, 79-year-old Courtney Atlas admitted to assaulting, murdering, and desecrating Pamela's body. Atlas confessed to the murder after being provided immunity from prosecution for the crime. At the time of his confession, Atlas was behind bars for life for killing his wife, Donna, and burning their house down in 1983. He had filed for bankruptcy in early 1983 and was the beneficiary of homeowner's insurance and his wife's life insurance, which totaled $250,000. Experts testified that Donna Atlas had been most likely strangled to death before the fire even started and that an accelerant may have been poured on her body. In his confession, he stated that he lived below Pamela in 1968 and called her up one night to tell her there was a leak in her apartment that needed fixing. As Pamela led Atlas upstairs to take a look, he strangled her to death before dragging her body to his apartment, indecently assaulting her, and placing her in a barrel. Atlas then put the barrel in his car and drove it to the hangar where he taught flying lessons. Days later, he transported the remains to a remote area, used a knife and hatchet to desecrate the body, and then tossed it over the York Bridge. Atlas said he believed the barrel broke open when it hit a bridge support. Also, a knife was found in the area, and investigators believe it is the same knife he used. Atlas had denied killing his wife, even appealing his conviction, but finally admitted to it during his confession of killing Pamela at the Crossroads Correctional Center in Shelby, Montana. Marissa Rolfe Harvey was adopted by a family living in Port Washington, New York, when she was only three years old. Marissa's mother described her as a very special, happy child who loved animals, flowers, and plants. Marissa also loved to travel and had gone on two bike tours in Europe during the summer breaks of 1975 and 1976. On Christmas Day in 1977, a woman named Miriam Wadiff visited the family home of Marissa and her parents. 
Miriam was Marissa's biological sister. She was a graduate student and teacher in her 30s and had hired someone to track Marissa down. Miriam said that she and Marissa shared a biological mother, making them half-sisters. She said she wanted to get to know her better and wanted Marissa to come visit her in San Francisco. Though Marissa's parents were initially reluctant to allow it, they eventually decided it was unfair of them to keep their daughter from a blood relative. So, they agreed to let her visit during her Easter break in 1978. 15-year-old Marissa arrived in San Francisco on March 24, 1978, and enjoyed the Easter weekend with her newfound sibling. On March 27, 1978, Marissa went to Golden State Park for an afternoon horseback ride. Her sister taught at the San Francisco Institute and had to return to work that day, so she asked a friend to drop Marissa off at the stables. It was only after she was dropped off that she discovered the stables were actually closed for the day and she was left stranded at the park. This was the last time Marissa was seen alive. When Miriam returned home from work and Marissa failed to return that evening, she reported her missing. The next day, her lifeless body was discovered in Sutro Heights Park near the Golden Gate Park. She had been indecently assaulted and strangled to death, and her case would go unsolved for the next 40 years. In 2020, a cold case unit reopened her case, hoping advancements in DNA technology could help solve the murder. The DNA led them to 76-year-old Mark Stanley Personet, who was arrested on December 15, 2021, for the murder of Marissa. Even though he was arrested in Colorado, he spent many years in New Jersey, where he was in and out of jail. One of those arrests came after he lured a 16-year-old girl into his car to offer her a ride and then drove her into the woods where he indecently assaulted her. Thankfully, the victim survived the attack and was able to get help from a nearby home. She was able to provide a detailed description of her attacker and the vehicle he drove. Personette was ultimately charged with aggravated assault and indicted in 1980, but he fled before the trial even started. Mika Wadley was born on April 2, 1972. At the age of 28, Mika was living in the 1300 block of Carlson Boulevard in Richmond, California, and was a new mother to an infant daughter. Mika was described as outgoing and friendly and was said to always have a smile on her face. On January 9, 1999, at around 7.30 a.m., a neighbor heard screams coming from Mika's home and went to investigate. He knocked on the door, but when no one answered and the screams continued, he left and called the police. Arriving officers found the front door locked, but the back door unlocked and ajar. Once inside the home, officers found Mika on her bedroom floor, still warm to the touch. Her hands were bound, and a buck knife was discovered under her body. It was later determined that she died due to asphyxia by smothering. Mika's neighbor would tell investigators that he saw a man wearing a gray hoodie and beanie walking away from the apartment. The case went cold shortly after authorities ruled out a possible suspect, the man that Mika had been with the evening before her murder. A DNA profile 
created from a blood stain found at the crime scene and evidence on her hands, was sent to the State Department of Justice in 2002, but provided no results. In 2020, the county crime lab created a new DNA profile using physical evidence from underneath Mika's fingernails and her ligatures. Her sister said she fought back, which is how they got the DNA. In October 2020, that DNA was sent to a lab and used for genetic genealogy research. In 2021, it was matched to a potential relative of a man named Jerry Lee Henderson. The immediate relative provided their DNA for further testing, officially linking Henderson to the crime scene. But Henderson died 11 days after the murder of a drug overdose. The Wadley family said Henderson was a friend of a friend of Mika's who went into her home when she was out for the night, and when she came home, he indecently assaulted and suffocated her. At the press conference, authorities initially declined to name the suspect, stating they didn't want to give him fame and notoriety for the murder. But Mika's family was not going to stand for that and stopped the press conference and demanded his name be told so that his family would know what he did to her. Oh, okay. question, why is it okay he's a secret? Why the world can't know? We know what he did. Why mm -hmm. the family can't know? They look at him as a hero. He's not a hero. He's a murderer. He is. So why the world can't know? Well, my take on this is why give somebody fame and notoriety for Let committing such know. a murder? They need to know. We suffering. They walking around thinking he's an angel. That he died as an angel and Her he didn't. Her best friend went to his funeral. Yeah, I understand. So how do you think the family feels? Okay. It's no secret. Um, you know, I'm, I, I can't make that decision right now, but I do understand what you're saying. I do think that, that that's part of justice, right? But at the same time, I think in history, we, we've seen where the perpetrator is given notoriety and fame in an unwarranted way. He's not getting fame. Well, His family's walking around thinking he's just this perfect person. He's mm -hmm. not. not. He did something that destroys all of us. He hurted us. He did. And y'all let him just be a secret? No, that's not that's not the intent. Let, let's we'll talk about it, okay? And then and then we'll figure out a way forward, okay? All right. Yes, sir. Well, y'all keep talking about giving us closure, and y'all not giving us that. It's not closure. Y'all just basically telling us that she died. You're not telling who killed her. This is what we came here for, so the world can know what happened to her. Y'all not doing that. They're asking y'all what happened to her. Y'all not even saying that. They want details of what happened to her. Y'all not giving that. Okay. Uh, All y'all giving us is basically y'all close the case. Like here with the new DNA technology. Like, like my cousin said, y'all need to say a person's name. Yeah. Right. nothing to just say we closed the case. Right. Everybody else's case, the names is all over the TV. It don't matter about his, no, it ain't no notoriety. It's just letting the world know we closed the case and this we did it. Because right now you just saying we closed the case. Right. Okay. And I can speak for our family. It's not going to be no retaliation on that boy's no. family. It's I'm not sure. Gonna be none. You got my word on that. And I already told my relatives it's close to that behalf. Nothing is going to happen to that boy's yeah. family. Because whoever Nothing. did it, he's in the. He had a funeral, and they spoke highly of him at his funeral. All right. A week later, after he murdered her. Aaron, give me the give me the press release. Okay. Okay. Thank you. All right. 
So let me, let me explain a few things. The rationale for why I don't personally like to release names of murderers. You understand that, okay? And that's, that, that was the intent. It wasn't to try to lionize the guy or protect him at all, all right? I just want to make sure everyone's clear about that, all right? All right. Makia died as a result of asphyxia, okay? She was suffocated, all right? The evidence leading to this suspect identified him as the murderer in this case. And for the victim's family, and specifically for the victim's family, I will tell you who that is. All right? Jerry Lee Henderson is the suspect. He was identified through this DNA analysis, and unfortunately... We weren't able to bring him directly to justice because he died 11 days after the murder. In the end, 35-year-old Jerry Lee Henderson was officially named the murderer in Mika's case. Teresita Basa was born in the Philippines in 1929 and was the only child of a prominent and successful business couple, Pedro and Sakara Basa. In early 1960, she graduated from the University of Assumption and then moved to Chicago, Illinois to study music. She then earned a master's degree in music from Indiana University. Although music would always play a large part in her life, she eventually decided that she wanted to work in the medical field and became a respiratory therapist at Edgewater Hospital. However, she didn't let her musical gift go to waste and taught piano lessons on the side from her apartment. Teresita was described as a reliable worker, quiet and intelligent. On February 21, 1977, Teresita arrived home from work at about 5.30 p.m. Around 7.30 p.m., she received a phone call from her friend, Ruth Loeb. They talked for about 20 minutes before Teresita told Ruth she had to get off the phone because she was expecting a male visitor. Ruth didn't ask for the man's name or any other details. At about 10 p.m. that night, the fire department was called to the 15th floor of her apartment at 2740 North Pine Grove Avenue in Lincoln Park to put out a fire. Unfortunately, after quickly extinguishing the blaze, they soon realized the fire was not an accident. Instead, it was set to hide the murder of 44-year-old Teresita Bassa. Inside, Teresita was found under a burning mattress with a fatal knife wound, naked and posed to look as if she'd been indecently assaulted. This led detectives to assume the brutal attack was sexually motivated. To their surprise, the autopsy revealed otherwise. The home appeared to have been ransacked, but investigators could only find a little bit of physical evidence as the fire had destroyed most of the apartment. One piece of evidence that was found, however, was a note Teresita had written in her journal that read, Get tickets for A.S. The police suspected A.S. might have been involved in the crime, but they didn't know what the initials actually stood for. Teresita also had a boyfriend that was on the investigator's radar and was considered a possible suspect, but still, they had nothing concrete to go on. More than five months after Teresita's murder, her co-worker, Remabias Remy Chua, Another native from the Philippines and her husband, Jose, contacted the lead detective, 
claiming to have information about her murder. Jose, a doctor, told the detective that his wife had become possessed by someone claiming to be Teresita Bassa on three separate occasions. He was able to provide the detective with the complete details of how Teresita was killed and by whom. The doctor told police he didn't know Teresita and was unaware of her murder until his wife's possession. Not wanting to look foolish, the doctor said he had waited to talk to the police, thinking he could avoid having to explain his strange story. Remy told Jose that shortly after Teresita's murder, she began having visions and dreams in which Teresita appeared to her, begging her to go to the police and tell them what had happened to her. One night, Remy took a nap at home, and according to Jose, she started speaking in another voice. The voice claimed to be Teresita and said that her killer was Alan Showery. The voice claimed that he was an orderly that worked at the hospital and urged Jose to go to the police. However, when Remy woke up, she claimed to have no memory of what just happened. Jose decided at first not to go to the police. Then the voice possessed Remy a second time, asking Jose why he never went to the police. He said his reason was because he had no evidence against Showery. The voice then told Jose that Showery had taken Teresita's jewelry after murdering her and then gave it to his girlfriend, Yanka Komlov. Teresita's father had purchased the jewelry as a gift to her mother in France. The detective was leery and didn't know if he could trust this information or not. However, to their surprise, Showery actually lived very close to Teresita and had agreed to fix her television that night. However, after speaking to his girlfriend, they learned that he had no idea about the inner workings of electronics and could have never been able to fix a TV. Showery knew Teresita from work, and knowing Showery was in a tough financial spot, she had tipped him generously for helping her with errands and other tasks. Co-workers were also able to confirm that he planned to go to her apartment that night to repair her television. Showery was questioned and confirmed that he had gone to her apartment to repair the TV. However, he claimed he didn't have the tools to do so, so he returned home. Not buying his story, the detective contacted Showery's girlfriend. He asked if he had given her any jewelry recently, and she said he had. She agreed to let Teresita's friends and family inspect it, and they confirmed the jewelry was Teresita's. Confronted with the evidence, Showery confessed to Teresita's murder. He said that he planned to return and rob her after he left her apartment. When he returned, he said that she let him back in, and when she turned around to lock the door, he grabbed her from behind and attacked her. He disrobed her to make it look like a sexual crime and stole what little he could find. However, he soon realized that her death was all in vain as she only had $30 in the house, and so he took her jewelry to make up for it. He then took her mattress, placed it over her body, and set it on fire. Despite his confession, Showery pleaded not guilty to Teresita's murder. As a result, his trial was dubbed the Voice from the Grave trial, centering on Remy's testimony that Teresita spoke of her death through Remy's lips. The prosecution presented 13 witnesses over four days to a jury of eight men and four women. Though interestingly, the Chuas testified as witnesses for the defense. The state argued that evidence gathered due to the mysterious voices information pointed to Showery's guilt. 
However, by the fifth day of the trial, Showery said he'd only confessed to the crime two years earlier after police had fed him information and threatened to arrest him and his pregnant girlfriend on murder charges. He said he had dinner with his girlfriend on the night of the murder before drinking and playing darts with a neighbor around 7.30 p.m. Showery's trial ended on January 26, 1979, in a mistrial with a deadlocked jury. A month later, nearly two years after Teresita's murder, Showery strangely pleaded guilty to the killing, despite being close to possibly walking away a free man. Some believed that Teresita's ghost had haunted him behind bars and forced him to take responsibility, while others were convinced his lawyer had told him to plead guilty for a lesser sentence. He was ultimately sentenced to 14 years behind bars for the murder, robbery, and arson, but ended up only serving five years and was paroled in 1983. Despite Remy's insistence on paranormal involvement, there may be another non-paranormal explanation. Remy worked at Edgewater Hospital with Teresita and Showery, and it turned out Remy and Showery weren't on the best of terms. In fact, Showery's complaints about Remy's work resulted in her losing her job, and Teresita's dream visitations began shortly after the firing. But regardless of Remy's motivations, the fact remains that everything she shared was true. Her going to the police led to the capture and conviction of a murderer. If the supernatural isn't involved, we may never know how Remy obtained this information in the first place. Did her subconscious mind piece together various suspicions into a whole picture that just happened to match the truth? Let me know what you think in the comments below. In the end, even if Teresita's voice never spoke from beyond the grave, the alleged paranormal connections ultimately prevented her murderer from joining the legion of cases that have gone cold and remain unsolved. Thanks for joining me today on Southern Girl Crime Stories. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories, along with photos of victims, suspects, location of murders, and more. As always, your support is very much appreciated, and I look forward to seeing y'all next time.